robots aren't coming for your job. That, of course, comes with a footnote. Robots aren't coming for your job, provided you're engaged in non-repetitive tasks requiring high levels of social interaction and critical thinking, the so-called non-cognitive or soft skills. Many jobs and tasks make this cut. Labor market data suggests that we need more of them and that the people who have good human skills are among the best positioned for jobs and careers. AEI recently published a volume of essays by leading researchers and practitioners on this topic called Minding Our Workforce, The Role of Non-Cognitive Skills in Career Success. This book lays out the case for the importance and durability of non-cognitive soft skills. You can download it on the AEI website. Joining me this week on Hardly Working is another expert in this topic, Jamie Marisaitis, the CEO of the Lumina Foundation and author of Human Work in the Age of Smart Machines. We chatted about his career, his new book, and what we think the labor market might look like in the years ahead. Jamie Marisotis, thanks for joining us on Hardly Working. Great to be with you. Well, this is a very, very interesting book that you've written, and it's certainly a timely book given some of what we've just been through and you know are emerging from with the pandemic in terms of having, I think, now a greater appreciation, I think, of what it means to have regular social contact with our people that we work with and that the whole human side of work, you kind of don't miss it till it isn't there anymore. And so we've all had a little bit of that experience in the last year. So I want you to tell us about the book, but I, first I want you to just kind of tell us about you, what you do, what your career arc has been like, who do you look back on and say that that person or that institution or whatever it was really had a formative effect on, on your career. Yeah, it's a it's a wonderful intersection of my own experiences and my professional work because you know at the end of the day I've I've spent my career at this intersection of education and work and I've always found myself interested in trying to figure out how we can make that learning work connection more inclusive to literally serve more people and to serve them better and it's part of my own personal journey so I'm you know I come from an immigrant family first generation to go to college my own journey to college was more luck than planning. In fact, I I showed up for my freshman year of college at Bates College in Maine, not knowing that you're actually supposed to visit colleges before you go and enroll in them. And so uh, all these people were like, oh, what did you like about Bates when you you first came here? And I said, I I don't know. I've never been here. This is my, my first day here. So, you know, from that point in the journey to understanding how important preparing yourself for a lifetime of productivity and, and human work, you know, it began with that experience of, of being at a, at a really good place that built both my generalizable traits and capabilities, my critical thinking, my problem solving, my communicating, and taught me something about lots of subjects, math, science, in my case, political science is, is what I ended up doing. You know, I, so I feel, I feel myself to be fortunate to have had a career path. I ran a bipartisan federal commission in the early 1990s. It was appointed by the president and congressional leadership. It actually spanned over two presidencies, Reagan and Bush, as well as two different changes in in congressional control. So five Republicans and four Democrats and ended up producing a bipartisan report with this federal commission and then started a nonpartisan think tank in the early 1990s called the Institute for Higher Education Policy. So I've always found myself much more as someone who's interested in large-scale systemic change, primarily through public policy, less interested in, in politics, 
you know, I don't care what party you're from. If you believe that in, you know, in the case of my work, that you've actually got to prepare people for work and that work is changing, you know, your political stripes don't matter to me, but it's very important to me that lots of people, low income, first generation, minority populations that have historically been disadvantaged get opportunities to, to do that kind of work because I think that's the, the future of our country. So, you know, my own, my own path of the, the education and work connection, I think is very much connected to, to this book. Uh, I really liked what you were saying there about sort of your accidental start to college. <laughs> I think that people have generally have this idea that they need a plan for everything. If they kind of put one foot wrong, if they don't get the high, a high enough score on the ACT or the SAT, or if they choose the wrong school, or if they choose the wrong major, that somehow they're going to step off a cliff and be unsuccessful. And I know my own life, it's been rather the opposite, you know, that there's a serendipity to career. There's a wholesomeness to just sort of letting life unfold a little bit, as well as having some general ideas about what you want to do. Did you find that true for yourself? I mean, like, did your career develop the way that you thought it was going to? Clearly not. In fact, you know, I'm, I'm now the CEO of one of the largest private foundations in the country. I couldn't have imagined. I didn't even know what philanthropy was when I was, you know, 18, 21 years old. But, you know, what I wanted to do was participate in creating change to help society be better in, in, in some way. And you can anticipate these career paths. In fact, you know, I had been in DC for two decades when the search firm called me about the job as CEO of Lumina Foundation. I really had never thought about doing anything but working in Washington, D.C. and serving as a policy advisor at the federal level, at the state level. I was doing policy advising in other countries. It never occurred to me that I could do something that is this rewarding and this interesting, which is trying to participate in large-scale change from a private investment perspective. And so, yeah, I think um, nobody's journey is predetermined. I don't believe that. What I do believe is that you've got to work at preparing yourself for the changing nature of that journey because it's 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 not set in stone. You really do have to participate in your own development, not just early in life, right. but throughout your career. Yeah, that's a really good word. I agree completely. I think you know the jobs jobs of the future will look very regardless of what happens. They look a lot very little like the ones that we have today, and so we have to be prepared to pivot. What was the bipartisan commission that you led? It was called, it's one of the longest names you'll, you'll ever hear. It was called the National Commission on Responsibilities for Financing Post-Secondary Education. The idea for the commission was actually the brainchild of former Senator Jim Jeffords from Vermont. Interestingly, he wrote the legislation when he was a House member, and then he had been elected to the Senate when it came into being. And of course, Jim Jeffords is best known from a historic perspective of having left the Republican Party and become an independent during the tenure of President Bush. And but what's interesting about Jim Jeffords is that he always believed in this idea that there was this public-private partnership that had to be put in place in order to really drive the increasing demand, you know, meeting the increasing demand for talent that the country has. And, and he was right. He wrote the, the original legislation for that commission in the 80s. He was right way before we've had these very deep question conversations about automation and artificial intelligence and all of the changes that we see accelerating the changing nature of work. So he was, he was clearly ahead of his time. I worked on the Hill for a long time. And I, I remember when I was working in the Senate at one point, and 
you know, it was red hot economy, you know, it was the, the dot com boom before the bust and super low unemployment. And, and he was out there trying to push workforce development and job training. And, and I think a lot of conservatives, including myself, were like, why are we bothering? You know, there's, <laughs> there's plenty of work here. We don't really need to do that. But of course, with age comes a little bit more wisdom, sometimes anyway. And we can now see the wisdom of Jim Jeffords and others like him who have really pushed, she's now, now departed, but really pushed for a more forward-looking strategy around That's higher exactly education. Right. Yeah. Okay. So let's get to your book, Human Work. Tell us about it and tell us about the big themes, what you're trying to do with the book, how it adds to our understanding of these challenges. Well, the thread back to my own career, I think, is interesting because, you know, as I said, you know, I've been trying to literally focus on how do we make that learning work inter interconnection stronger, better. And, you know, over the course of, the, of my career, more than three decades, this question has continued to come up and it keeps getting louder and louder. And the question that people keep asking me is, why are we as a nation so focused on education? In other words, fundamentally, was it, what is it really for? And, you know, as I explored that question, I realized the answer is that we, we have to prepare people for the work that only humans can do. And we have to do that because we know that work is changing in unprecedented ways. Technology and AI is, you know, taking over more and more of the tasks people used to do. And, you know, I became very interested in this idea of how we can actually understand what human work is, which is an important part of the book and then how we will prepare people for human work. And what frustrated me, frankly, in, in writing the book, I started working on the book in 2018, and I finished it in the middle of, of 2020, is that in that time period, everybody was sort of focused on, you know, what I've been calling the robot zombie apocalypse, you know, the, the robots are going to come and eat everybody's job, and nobody's gonna have anything to do. And, you know, my view is that technology has always been a job creator and a job destroyer. But in the end, technology always creates more jobs than it destroys. So what I'm more interested in is not that process of creative destruction and renewal, but rather what is the work that we will be doing and how are we going to prepare people for it? You know, to me, we know what machines are good at. They're good at repetition, at speed, at pattern, at, at reduction to an algorithm. But machines don't understand subtlety and human nuance and how people react to each other. In fact, you know, the more that people interact with each other, the less likely the, the work can be done by machines. So one of the people I talked to in the book is a roboticist, famous roboticist named Ken Goldberg, runs the robotics program at Berkeley. And he refers to this idea of human-machine complementarity, this idea that what humans are good at is complementary to what machines can do and vice versa. And so to me, you know, that's, I think, the key here, which is we have to take advantage of the capabilities of machines, but also understand their limitations and refocus ourselves on those human skills and knowledge and capabilities that define us as, as human workers. So, you know, we'll have to nurture those foundational human abilities, our ability to be compassionate, to be empathetic, to be ethical, and, you know, to, to build our human capabilities for critical analysis and communication and collaboration in ways that are different than what we've done before. So, you know, at the end of the day, I think, the conclusion I came to is that we're different than machines in, in a lot of ways, but you know, probably the most important is that for us as humans, work matters. And we are working not only because we want to earn a paycheck, everyone wants to do that, but also because it offers us social mobility. 
and satisfaction and dignity, and at the end of the day, meaning and purpose. And so the book is really about how we should be thinking about work in, in the future going forward, the work that only humans can do, and how we're going to prepare people for that through our formal and informal learning systems. Yeah, that's an entirely different framework of thinking about work than Americans typically use. You know, the, the question, this question that you say keeps coming up, why education? Why do we bother? The answer that I think Americans are most comfortable with is the one that says, I can show you how to connect what you are learning immediately to the workforce. You know, it's a very sort of utilitarian focus on work that doesn't really get to questions of meaning and purpose. It's all about economic outcomes. And it's a huge theme in my own work in thinking about this is that we call our little group at AEI vocation, career, and work. And I'm actually most interested in the vocational question, not vocation in the sense of the trades necessarily, although the trades are great. I'm really interested in getting, trying to get people to ask a different set of questions about kind of meaning and purpose and calling in life so that people end up doing the things that they're most excited about, most passionate about, most gifted for the kind of, you know, my, my hope for everybody is that they get to have a career like mine in the sense that it's what I would have done for free if I could have afforded not to take a paycheck. And it's not like that every day, but it's been like that more days than not. Does vocation play a role in your own thinking about these questions? Absolutely. I, you know, I think I think it's very important to sort of have a purpose, a focus. You know, one of the things that I looked at in working on the book was the longstanding Gallup research on what people say they want out of work. And, you know, a longstanding trend going back decades is that people say they, they want to earn a paycheck, but they also want meaning. They want to know that they are contributing to a greater whole, that they're making a difference in their work, that they that it that helps others that it that it helps them it helps their community what have you in fact you know interestingly in their in their surveys even the lowest quintile earners say that they will give up some some money for meaning which is pretty pretty interesting so you know to me as humans we work you know i describe it in the book as a virtuous cycle we work because we need to earn we need to learn and we need to serve others and it's that earning and learning and serving cycle that I think is really part of this human work ecosystem going forward that we've got to focus on. And being clear about what you do and why you do it, I think, is my definition of what, what vocation is. It's not simply a job. It's about work. And the idea behind work, having a purpose and an outcome, I think, is, is really important. And you know, again, one of those outcomes, I want to be clear, is people want to make money and yeah. generally want to make more money. Yeah. But I think we've overstated that as the sole motive that people have in work. You know, it's why I'm continued to be skeptical of universal basic income strategies. I understand the short-term utility of support programs for people who are in, you know, out of cycle work opportunities, but I think the idea of universal basic income is challenging to me because it defies what I think people want out of work, which is that they they want to do it because they find meaning and purpose behind it. So to me, we've got to be thinking more about how we develop more work integrated learning and learning integrated work. And I don't know what the other one would be, service integrated working, whatever it would be, 
you know, I think bringing all of these things together into better work opportunities for people is the key to that satisfaction and, and meaning that people want. Yeah, and I think it's been just thinking about this in terms of the pandemic. I think this has been particularly on display for us. And I'm hoping we don't lose this thread after the pandemic is over. But I was very moved by a number of media stories and articles that I read about the essential worker and how, you know, we think of some of these jobs and that the the one, there were a couple, there was a news hour piece on a guy who was a garbage collector in his city. That guy loved his job and he understood how important his job was during the pandemic, you know, to keep, keep at it. He was really serving his community. And so there was that that sense of vocation and calling, even in some, and even in a position like that, where most of us would say, "Gosh, you know, that's I'm awfully glad somebody wants to do that job. I'm glad I don't have to do it myself." And there was another piece in the New York Times about, you know, sort of home health aides. You know, these are minimum wage workers who, in the height of the pandemic, were on the subways making their rounds to visit their clients and to keep them well and safe and fed and bathed. And they were so proud of what they were doing. And I'm glad they weren't working for money because no one would do that job just for the money. They felt a real calling to it. So I think that this, yeah, I think we, I don't think, I don't think we've read, have ever seen more stories about grocery store workers than yeah. we have in the last year and a half and understanding the important part that they play in, in our lives. And I, I still remember when the terrible storms hit and they had the power outages in Texas last year. And there was this photograph of a group of workers in a pizza place. Now, you know, they're earning minimum wage in this pizza place. You know, you know they're not there for the money in that sense. And they had run out of food. And these, these poor people who were working in a pizza place were devastated that they couldn't do more for the people who had lost power. They, you know, they, were, they were sort of very desperate. And it was them sitting on the floor, just looking exhausted. Like they were, they had worked so long, so hard, and they literally ran out of food. And it was, it was a sort of great sort of visual representation of these people are there for something besides the money. They're there because they really want to serve others. And, and I, I think there's, there's real value in understanding why people want to do that and how we as a society need to better support them in doing that kind of work. So... I feel like half the time in my work, I'm talking to people who are doing in-depth analyses about the question of the end of work. And half the time I'm talking to people saying, particularly of late, you know, we've got this labor shortage problem. Skill, it's been, we've, we've had a skills gap for a long time, but now we've actually got a question of whether we've got enough people, period, to staff the economy. You already mentioned that you're, you're bullish on the future of work in terms of technology, both creating while it destroys, you know, all of the, these new jobs. What do you make of the arguments from the other side? Why are they wrong? I think part of the issue of, of the idea that this is the end of work is that I don't think we've done the right analysis to show what the new opportunities are that have been created, again, as a result of technology. And this obviously goes back to the industrial era, right? That's the kind of technology we're talking about in, in that age now to the, you know, to the knowledge era and now, of course, the, the AI era. And you know, over the course of that, I think that what we've focused on is what was lost rather than what was, what was gained. And 
you know, to me, I am an optimist because I see the opportunities where we will have many more opportunities to do the kinds of things that we as humans are uniquely capable of doing. You know, I, I talk in the book about God only knows we don't need another typology from some guy writing a book, but I talk about examples of the kinds of of human workers we're talking about going forward and why we're not going to have a a shortage of opportunities. And I call them helpers, bridgers, integrators, and creators. And so, you know, we're going to need these helpers or people who are engaged in occupations that involve deep personal interaction. You're not going to get this from a machine. We're going to need more therapists. We're going to need more customer service people. People hate pressing four. They really want to talk to a real person. They really want to be able to, but that, that person requires training and knowledge and the ability to sort of help the customer get from here to there. These people that I call bridgers are working in these occupations that involve sort of deep connections between people and technical systems. So sales managers, you know, things like that are really important. And then the other two, the integrators and creators, I see a lot of potential there. The integrators, these are the people like the social workers and the teachers where they're integrating knowledge and skills from a wide range of fields and applying them in a, in a really, I guess I would call it a personal way. That has huge growth. And we're going to see a lot more of that. You know, we've been talking now in the COVID era about wholly remote work or wholly remote learning and in-person work and in-person learning. The reality is much of the action is going to be in the middle. It's going to be hybrid learning and hybrid work. And these people who are the integrators are going to be more important than they were before. Just to finish my list, the creators are, are the people who, you know, whose work involves, you know, a combination of really highly technical skills and and pure human creativity. So, you know, people who are doing all the game developing that's, you know, really exciting and, and choreography, things like that. So, you know, I see, I am an optimist. I see a lot of, of opportunity, but I do think we will go through these economic cycles where we will see a lot of destruction and renewal. And I think we're going to see it now coming out of COVID. I do think industries like hospitality, retail, certain parts of manufacturing, certain other industries are going to be dramatically changed because employers are going to take the opportunity to use technology in better ways to perform some of these tasks. And the human workers are going to have to adapt what they do to, to change what they're doing in terms of those jobs. Yeah, I think that's the upside of automation that we've seen throughout history is that we tend to offload kind of the dirty jobs. I mean, the things that, you know, dangerous industrial work or mining right. or, you know, we we put fewer lives sort of at risk and then humans get to move up the value chain into a higher level. So I, I do think that's the case. However, that does raise the skills question and how we get people, you know, you mentioned the grocery workers and I was talking to somebody from the National Grocers Association a couple of weeks ago and they're like, oh yeah, we're investing heavily in more automation, both in the cleaning of stores and in, you know, checkout and all of that. But then we're also creating behind the scenes a lot of technical staff to run all that technology and to keep that technology working. And that was supposed to be reassuring. But in a sense, it's like that's created a different kind of challenge because now we those workers are not interchangeable right now. And we've got a lot of skill building to do in order to make that exchange. So what's your what's your thought on that kind of transition? What what are your recommendations around upskilling? Hey, you know, before COVID, the story everyone wanted to talk about was truck drivers, right? What are we going to do with truck drivers when we have more and more self-driving vehicles? And look, automation and self-driving vehicles are coming. 
there's a long tail of this, right? We're not going to go to wholly automated where, you know, you're going to you see the evolution of this already happening with things like the, the Teslas. But at the end of the day, what we need to be focusing on is how we are getting people from where they are now to where they need to go. And, you know, I call this idea is preparing people for career adjacency, right? So instead of saying, let's turn truck drivers into coders, because they're not going to become coders. I don't care how many stories people write about this. They're not going to become coders. But we should be thinking about the career adjacent opportunities for people like truck drivers. So in in the case of that example, let's get them into logistics, which is something they understand because they understand how goods and materials move. But logistics requires a human element that is very different than you know what we would have would have done before. And so you know these logisticians, you know, do they do fleet supervision? They do supply chain. They do inventory management. Lots of things. Those jobs were surging before COVID. And they're going to surge even more in this post-vaccine era that we're moving into that I think is really important. But you can see this in lots of different fields where this idea of preparing people for career adjacent opportunities is smarter than saying, let's take, let's pluck somebody out of one context and put them in a wholly foreign, completely different context and quote unquote, retrain them. That generally doesn't work. But thinking more about the adjacent opportunities is something I think Workforce training leaders, people involved in employer-provided educational opportunities should be thinking more and more about. It's how to get people from here to there, not how to get them into wholly new, wholly different opportunities. That's just not realistic for, for, for a lot of adults who are going through this retraining process. Yeah, and that raises a couple other questions I wanted to get into. The first is, and this is something we're actively working on. We just put out a paper that was written by David Deming and Rachel Lipson up at the Wiener Center at, at Harvard on the way that the United States addresses worker transition. Have you given any thought to what you think the right models are to help people do what you just said, which is either you can see it coming, you're good, this job is going away or it's being significantly altered. It's not going to be what it once was. And we've got a bunch of workers. And how are we going to get those workers from where they are to where they need to be? Have you given that any thought? Yeah, it's so it's a combination of public policy efforts and the intersection between the current employer and and the worker. At a public policy level, I do think that we need to be thinking more, more holistically about these ideas about how we're actually preparing people for Lumina Foundation, we call these credential pathways, right? Which is getting people into training programs where they get a certificate, a certification, something like that, eventually get a degree, et cetera. But there's a path, there's a pathway for them to follow so that allows them to progress through a changing work experience. Because again, if you get that credential, that certification, that certificate, it's going to have relevance for a while but it's going to expire and you're going to need to do more. So thinking more about these pathways from a public policy perspective is really important. Putting it into the workforce training programs, putting it into the into the education programs, I think would be really important to think about those those pathways. And then the other part, you know, which is the way in which employers and their workers need to come together more is, you know, I equate this to sort of the way we should be thinking about healthcare, right? Which is as the worker you should own your learning the same way you own your health, right? So what do you do with your health? You get annual checkups and you take preventative measures and you also plan for the long term. And you know, instead of this outdated first you learn, then you work model, 
what we should be doing is helping workers move from here to there with very specific plans, right? Helping them actually develop these career plans, you know, do a checkup every three or five years and look at where you are and what, what skills do you need to have, not for the job you're doing now, but for the next job you want to do. And doing these sort of integrated learning, working, whatever we call them, earning, learning, serving plans, I think would be, would be really valuable. But being holistic about it, I think is, 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 is it's really important. You know, Fed Chair Powell said you know, recently, the economy that we're moving into really is very different. It's going to be leveraged to technology and it's going to be a lot more difficult for a lot of workers. And you know, what he's signaling, I think, is that this is not a peripheral issue. Worker training is not a peripheral issue. We've got to think about it in the same way that we've thought about things like long-term healthcare, which is that it's a process that you invest in for the long-term, not episodically, not in a, in a short-term way, but over a very long period of time. So that sounds a lot like the way the, some of the Northern European countries approach this, you know, some sort of a social insurance model to career development where everybody you know, across society, including the individual, are making investments in the resource base that's needed in order to finance all of this, right? You've got to have, workers have to have something that you, we tell them they have to get retrained or that they have to invest in their education. Well, they've got to have resources to do that. Is that what you're talking about? Is that kind of a social insurance model? I think that's part of it. I don't know enough about those models necessarily to know whether there's something that we can adapt to our unique context in the U.S. You know, one of the things that's true about the U.S., because I've, I've worked globally for much of my career before Lumina Foundation, is that we have such a complex, sophisticated economy that in a lot of countries, these, the ability to do these sort of detailed career pathway approaches are more challenging in a country like the U.S. because we literally have a much more diversified economy than many other, many other nations. But still, I think learning from the Northern Europeans, the Singapores, those kind of places, I think can be really helpful in thinking about our own approaches. But what, what we have in common with them is a need to be very planful, to be very deliberate, to be very intentional about how we're going about doing this with the workers. You know, I'm not talking here about you know, Soviet manpower planning type approaches here. What I'm talking about is worker-centered, worker-oriented models where they have the agency, where they have the control over this. And, you know, this may be that we develop new kinds of worker training accounts that you can access over the course of, of your entire career. This may be ways in which employers and government and the workers themselves and their family members can contribute towards this common fund that will help the employees pay for these ongoing, you know, learning and working opportunities over their, over their career. There's different ways to do this, but the point is, to be intentional and to not see it as a one and done prospect. Yeah, I think that's right. It, we put together a paper, you know, sort of on the recovery from the workforce recovery from COVID. And, you know, my view of it is that, you know, we've got a workforce system that on the front end of the pandemic kind of cratered under the, you know, the number of people applying for unemployment benefits and and now we're coming out of it. And I think we've got a similar problem. We've got a lot of people who need to upskill and we have a system that isn't really never going to be large enough to accommodate that much demand. And so we needed a more, a more flex, more worker focused and more flexible 
approach. So one of the things we recommended was personal reemployment accounts right. that could be built over time, you know, like rather than shoving everybody through one funnel, go to the go to the one stop and get help. Not everybody needs that help, especially in a, like this where we've had people, you know, who lost their jobs, who've been working for years and, you know, they're they're self-starters and they're going to go out and find something, but they may need some assistance in order to make that transition back to work. And really focusing on these kind of flexible and worker focused, but I think you're right about the need, the planfulness side of it. Keeping in mind that, as we talked about at the beginning, that the best plan never, you know, never survives contact with reality, but it gives you kind of a sense for where you're interested, your interests lie, and and where you might be able to go. So I think that makes. I agree. I think that makes a ton of sense. You know, the key to this I, is know. to is to prepare people for this, though, right? So we, I just make this point quickly here, Brent, which is that you know we we tend to talk past each other at a societal level because of the polarized nature of the politics about what the approach is. So you know, one one fact I keep mentioning in a lot of my recent appearances is in March of this year, the U.S. economy added more than nine hundred thousand new jobs, but of those, just seven thousand, about one percent, went to people with a high school credential or less. So if you look at that fact, you'd say, well, that means that we should send everybody to college, right? Well, no, the answer is that those jobs went to people who had certificates, certifications, or degrees, or another post-high school credential. And the point is that we should be getting people into those pathways, get them on the first rung of the ladder of opportunity, but keep moving them through. That's the key. For some people, yeah, great. Go to a bachelor's degree program, get yourself into that pathway now. But for some people, it is getting them into the first learning opportunity and then the key is to help them continue to move along that journey because that first credential is likely not going to be sufficient to carry them for very long. That's the part that I wish we would do a better job at a sort of public policy level of coming together and saying, what we're talking about is better preparing people in all kinds of ways post high school. And some of that is college. Some of that is workforce programs. Some of that is direct to consumer mediated, technology mediated learning. All of it, though, should be important to us if we want to help advance the the overall level of workforce abilities going forward. Right. But this points to a really central conundrum that I wrestle with. I'm sure you're thinking about it. And I know that you talked about it some in, in the book. When we talk to employers, when anybody talks to employers and asks them, what's the problem in the workforce? They don't usually come back and say, well, we need more credentials. They come back saying, we need better human beings, you know, and the way that you've kind of already talked about human work, people who have this, these soft skills, non-cognitive skills, we just put out a volume on this last week. This is the deficit that we're facing. Now, my view of this, and then I want to hear what your view is, is that those kinds of skills are caught rather than taught. They don't, re- they aren't really amenable to classroom instruction or to curricula in general. They're the kinds of things that we learn within our families and community organizations and high school sports and, you know, drama club or whatever it is, but we absorb them rather than learn, learn them. You've identified human work as being the future. What are we going to do about that? Those deficits. Yeah. 
It's a great question. And I agree with you that it's a conundrum. I think there's a lot of complexity to this to this discussion. You know, first of all, I, I bristle at the term soft skills. So I'm just going to put my cards on the table and say that, you know, the kinds of things that you're talking about in what we know employers say they want, right? So what do they want? They want people who are who know something about whatever the, the job is, graphic design or being a chemist or whatever it is. But they need people who are good at working in teams. They, good at, they need people who are really good at being analysts. They need people who can communicate effectively with their, with their coworkers and peers. They need people who are ethical, who are going to make good decisions, et cetera. So all of those things I think are really important. And to me, those aren't soft skills. Those are durable skills. Those are the things that matter over the long term. Your content knowledge is going to change, right? You're going to need to continue to build your knowledge about the changing nature of a field. But those things aren't soft. They are the durable things that really matter. So and just to say, we are completely on the same page. I don't like non-cognitive skills right, right, because all right. skills are cognitive. I don't exactly. like soft skills because <laughs> it's a complete misnomer and it right. kind of you know diminishes their importance. You know, I don't know that we've we've got social emotional skills out there in the ed world. You know, we've got all sorts of different terminology to describe these things, and it's almost like. We need another word to describe this. I like durable skills or transferable skills exactly. or something in that of that kind. But anyway, go ahead. How do we get more of them is my question for you. Yeah, so, so this is the key. And I think you're right that it's, or maybe I agree partially with you, which is that it's a combination of experience and formal learning. To me, though, the key is, so I've talked with lots of these employers who say we're not hiring for degrees, we're hiring for skills. What they mean is that they're doing their own assessment of skills and essentially deciding on their own that this person is quote unquote credentialed. So it's just a different model of credentialing rather than this external third party of a college or university or a workforce training entity doing it. So again, it may be another one of those cases where we're talking past each other. What we should agree on is that you've got to know and be able to do things and to be able to demonstrate that in some way. And to me, I think credentials, whether they be certificates or badges or degrees or, or whatever they may be, do have a long tail in the labor market because most employers don't have the ability to assess people's skills independently. They need that third-party validation. But this is a real threat, in my opinion, to the traditional model of assuming that colleges and universities always know best or that they always have the model. I'm certainly not on that side of, of the equation. What I'm saying is that the colleges and universities as uh, primary engines of workforce training in this country need to do a much better job of being clear about what their learners know and can do if they give them that degree, that certificate, that, that credential going forward. And that kind of transparency in what's behind the degree or the, or the qualification, I think, is, is really critical. But I'm fine with new ways of credentialing as long as we have a system for understanding how does this independent credential align with this credential that may be developed in a college or university context. Because from the, in a worker-centered system, you want that portability, you want that mobility to say, I'm going from job A to job B in a different firm. I want the new firm to be able to know what I got out of the last job and how my quote-unquote credentials in that last job will apply to this job. So to me, I do think we need a credentialing ecosystem. We've invested in something Illumina Foundation called Credential Engine that's trying to do just that. But there's a long way to go to bring all of these different models of credentialing together 
into a seamless system where it is interoperable, where you can understand, you know, these privately or independently assessed platforms like what Google is doing and what might happen in the traditional models of colleges or, or workforce programs. An interesting conversation earlier today with somebody pretty high up at IBM and their human resources and talent development. And we got into this conversation about, you know, he raised it, you know, like it's it's the non-cognitive, durable skills, soft skills, mm. that domain, it's at least half, probably more than half of what they're looking for in the people that they're interviewing who who sort of pass the, th- the technical threshold of whatever it is that they need. Then you're looking at the, you know, can you actually work with other people? And I said, well, how do you assess it? And the answer was pretty much what I thought it was going to be, which is you just kind of know, you know, you just kind of have to get this impression of working with people when you're interviewing them, when you're talking to them and you're, you're picking up on all of these signals about who they are as a person and making an assessment as to whether they're compatible with the corporate culture that you're trying to bring them into. And to me, that's just a really deeply kind of unsatisfying answer because that makes you have to rely on the person who's doing the interviewing to be able to pick up on those signals themselves. Now, theoretically, they've been there longer, so they know what they're looking for. But I really struggle with this. We're very subjective about this. And I don't want to turn it into a badge necessarily or a credential. but we need to have some way of letting at least people know that we are looking for these things in them, these qualities in them. And then we need to figure out, like, why is this a deficit in our workforce? This is a socialization problem of some sort. And what are we going to do about that? Because I think it's it starts very early in life. So I don't know if you've got any thoughts on any of that, but yeah, there, there, there may be an element of this. I don't think there is a good answer to that question. And I think that employers like IBM probably are doing the best they can with the tools that they have. But at the end of the day, I think we've got to develop better tools. You know, I'm intrigued by what are, you know, admittedly flawed models right now, but the kinds of things that LinkedIn has tried to do, right, which is peer based evaluation, where, you know, if enough people weigh in and say, yeah, you know, turns out, Brent's a really good teammate. He can really work well with others. And here's some examples of ways in which he's done that. That can be pretty credible over time. You know, you might be able to game that system, but there's something there that I think is worth further exploring, which is that you need some combination of truly independent analysis, good human judgment like the supervisor, but also that sort of third-party validation, which might include your peers as well as external, you know, wholly external validators to say, yeah, you know what? He here's an example of where he had a tough decision to make in our pharmaceutical company and and he made the ethical decision. That was the right decision for him. That kind of information I think can be can be gleaned in scientific ways that I don't think is just observational based on on what the interviewer or even the supervisor might might have to say. Yeah, and that's I think where IBM has wound up too. I mean, they're they're really working hard at kind of sort of assessing the digital footprint of individuals on platforms like like LinkedIn and other places where that kind of information shows up to see what people, essentially what people are saying about other people as part of their evaluation process. So that's, I think, an important strategy on this. We're over, a little over time, but it's been really exciting conversation. 
this is one of my favorite hobby horses. I think we've gone too far in criticizing the four-year degree. The data, the research data on this is pretty conclusive. Four-year degrees really pay. I think we don't think about four-year degrees enough from a skills standpoint, as opposed to like, what did you study? What, what content did you get? But what skills did you pick up while you were in college or develop while you were in college? But I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts, especially as it relates to the human skills side of the equation. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, two things, you know, one is doing a better job, as I said, of articulating what people know and can do with that bachelor's degree. And to me, that credential has to focus on, again, not just the content, but also those human traits and capabilities and being able to assess whether or not they've made advances in their empathy or their ethics or their collaboration or analytic reasoning. These are things that are, that are measurable. And, and I think that they can do that. The second is to help the learner who becomes the learner worker over the course of their lifetime better understand that they are participating in that virtuous cycle of learning, earning, and serving, and not leaving them with the impression that once they're done with this credential, they are done. That is, that they're going to have to continue to develop their abilities and their capacity to get meaning and purpose and dignity, to make more money, to continue to learn in that ongoing cycle. To me, that that's really important. And you know, maybe one sort of a footnote on, on my two points is that the colleges and universities actually have to do a better job than what they say they care about, which is putting equity first in terms of, of their efforts. To me, you know, an equitable learning system, one that really serves all people, particularly our fastest growing populations, I think is incredibly important. And, you know, if you look at the, at the track record of higher education as an engine of economic and social mobility, it has done some of that, but it has not done it well enough to close the gaps in equity that we have as a society. And if there's anything we've learned from COVID, it is that those gaps are yawning gaps. They are unacceptable gaps. And the education system's got to do a better job of actively participating and helping to close those gaps. Well, that is an excellent word to end on. Jamie Marisotis, thank you so much, not just for your time here this afternoon, but for the great work you're doing at the Lumina Foundation and very much looking forward to the new research that you help to fund and practices that you're helping to develop and integrating that into our work at AEI as well. So great having you with us. And we look forward to seeing you again sometime in the near future. And just before you sign off, if people are interested in learning more about you or about Lumina, where should they go? Yeah, the Lumina Foundation website is just luminafoundation.org. And if you want to know more about me and the two books that I've written, American Needs Talent was my first book, and now Human Work in the Age of Smart Machine, it's jamiemarisotis.com. Great to be with you, Brent. And are you on Twitter? I am. Twitter is at jamiemarisotis. Okay, terrific. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks again. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.